uh, if you have a Bible, if you have your Bible, go ahead and grab it and open up to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 is where you're looking uh, to be this morning. And so um, if you don't have a Bible with you, you should be able to find one, as I said before, and seat back around you. And Acts is towards the back of the book. You're looking for Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Um, and Acts 2 is where we will be this morning. As you're turning there, I'd like to thank, um, really, our church, everybody in our church. As we head into this new year, um, it takes a lot of people to make church happen, to make church uh, run. And so for everyone who volunteers in so many different ways, all of the Sunday morning services, all the community group leaders, um, Jim, can you turn me down just a little bit? Um, all of the community group leaders, all of the different people who have served at Retro and Roscoe and Burger Fest and all of these different things that, that we do. Thank you for all of the ways you love and care and serve our church. Thank you so, so very much. Um, as I said, we're going to be in Acts 2 this morning. So we are here in 2020. We got here. We arrived. This is a big year. Every new year feels big, right? Because it's empty. It's open. It's fresh. We have no idea what this year has in store for us. Anything is possible. It's a new year. It's a new decade. It's an election year. Spoiler alert, the Cubs are going to win the World Series this year. It's a big year. And for us, and some of you have heard me say this a bunch, and you're going to hear me say it a lot more over the course of the next year, 2020 is the 90-year anniversary of Christian Fellowship Free Church. 90 years this church has been here. And as I've thought about that, I've been really struck with the reality that we, we sit here celebrating 90 years. And for most of us, like for some of you, that's brand new news. And like, oh, cool, it's a 90-year-old church. It's got a history. It just kind of happened. We just kind of fell into it. But that's not the case. The fact that this community and this building stands here is because generations of people have made a lot, thousands of daily intentional decisions to glorify God. They took daily steps towards seeing this church grow in becoming Christ-like and proclaiming Christ. Daily steps to grow in their personal walk. Daily steps to grow as a community. Daily steps to choose Christ above all else. Daily steps to be the light of the world God has made us to be. We didn't just wake up and magically got to 90 years as a church. Just like you're not going to magically one day wake up and be a mature Christian if you don't put the work in. It's daily moments. It's taking a step toward growth and then another one and another one. I asked the question way back in 2019, last week. I said, what does it look like for you to take one step in your walk this year? What does it look like for you to take one step forward in becoming more Christ-like this year? In proclaiming Christ to others this year? And that's going to be a reoccurring theme that we're going to look at this year. We'll talk more about it next week, but that's going to be a reoccurring theme for us. One step. What does it look like to increase? What does it look like to grow just a little bit? And then a little bit more, and then a little bit more. Daily steps as we pursue Christ. And this morning what I want us to do is we're going to look at Scripture, and we're going to look at the New Testament church in the book of Acts, and look at some tangible ways to help us engage with 2020 and see some real growth and life change, right? Because this is that time of year where we think about resolutions, we think about what 2020 has, the potential that it has, and we want to see change, we want to see growth. And so I want us to have some tangible things we can hold on to as we walk into the new year. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll get to work. So please, uh, by your heads and pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for another day, another opportunity, a new year, a new decade, a new chance 
to come together and celebrate you. That even though the year and the decade are new, even though we're we're wearing our, our new clothes from Christmas, all of this newness, all of this freshness, we come to the same God who is trustworthy, the same God who does not change, the same God who we know, who we can trust in, who we can rely on, who we can go to in any situation, good or bad, and know that we can find safety and security and rest in you. God, I pray that as we study your word, not only today, but this week, this month, this year, that we would come to your word looking to encounter you. Not just to fill off, not just to check something off of a checklist, not just to, because we've resolved to read more, but because we've resolved to want to know you more. We want to encounter you. And so, Lord, we ask that as we approach your word, as we come to your word, that you would reveal yourself. Open our eyes. Help us to read and understand what you have to say to us. Lord, as I preach this morning, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be glorifying to you. We pray all of these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. All right, so we're going to start in Acts 2. We're going to go to 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set for one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So this is happening on the day of Pentecost, is what we call it, where the Holy Spirit comes down on the disciples there together, gathered together, and they start preaching. They start preaching the gospel. And there are hundreds, thousands of people together from all different, all different parts of the world, speak all kinds of different languages. And as the disciples start teaching, these thousands of people who speak different languages and only know their language, they start hearing the teaching in their own language. Because the Holy Spirit is making it so that all people can hear, uh, that the gospel can be heard. And Peter here is preaching what is considered one of the best sermons in the Bible. And really his focus, as you heard it, 
It's talking about Jesus. It starts with Jesus. Verse 22, he starts talking about Jesus, and he talks about what the people already know, that Jesus did mighty works and wonders and signs. When you talk with somebody about God and faith, when you start, it's a good idea to start with what do they know about Jesus? Get to Jesus quickly in the conversation, because often that's going to reveal where they actually stand, reveal strengths and weaknesses of their faith, and you can go from there. Peter here appeals based on what the people know, that Jesus actually lived, that he was a man who actually lived and actually did the things the gospel tells us that he did. He's validating the life of Jesus. But if you're going to talk about Jesus, you've got to quickly get to the fact that he died for the forgiveness of sins, and that's what we see in verse 23. That Jesus was killed, that Jesus was crucified. But it wasn't an accident. It wasn't a catastrophe. Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It means God not only knew what was going to happen, but he planned it that way. This ugly, dark messiness of the cross was planned. All of the things that happened there, the the beauty of the fact that our sins are forgiven, but the pain of the fact that Christ suffered, all of that was planned. The song Beautiful Scandalous Night describes it this way. It says, At the wonderful, tragic, mysterious tree, on that beautiful, scandalous night, you and me were atoned by his blood and forever washed white on that beautiful, scandalous night. And that's what the cross was. It was beautiful in the fact that we find new life and new relationship with God through Christ's death, but it was scandalous and ugly and messy in the fact that he had to suffer and die. But make no mistake, Jesus was not a helpless victim of circumstances. He was not in the wrong place at the wrong time. No, he was exactly the right guy in the right place at the right time. Him being abandoned and betrayed and arrested and executed, all of it was for us, for our good and for the glory of God. To free us from the grasp of death and sin and hell, Christ died for us. But he didn't stay dead. He couldn't stay dead. See, in verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Jesus is too possible, or is too powerful for death to hold him. He is the very creator, sustainer, originator, completer. He is all in all. All things have been made by him and through him and for him. Nothing can contain or stop him because he is in control of all things. Peter talks about the pangs of death. That word, pangs, is actually the word for birth pains. And in a sense, the tomb that Christ goes into becomes a womb. Because new life, new birth happens for us through the death of Jesus. The theologian F.F. Bruce said, It is not possible that the chosen one of God should remain in the grip of death. The abyss can no more hold the Redeemer than a pregnant woman can hold the child in her body. The darkness and death that accompanied Jesus' suffering, it was never going to be a permanent situation. It couldn't be because darkness cannot consume light. The complete opposite happens. Light expels the darkness and Jesus is the light of the world. Peter goes on to explain and he quotes Psalm 16. It's a psalm of David that speaks about finding refuge and safety in the midst of God. David is writing about himself, writing about trusting in God, but he's also writing under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And whether or not he knew it, he's writing about Jesus. Jesus would not be abandoned to Hades. There would be no corruption for him. He is the path of life. 
And Peter understands, whether or not David did, Peter understands because Jesus taught him that all of Scripture points to Jesus. And this Psalm 16 here that we see in verses 25 through 28, that's speaking about Jesus. And so Peter continues to explain, not only quoting David, but then explains, look, David is dead and buried. David was the greatest king Israel ever had. God said David was a man after his own heart. He is held up on a pedestal. He is a champion of the faith, but he is dead and buried. You can go and visit his tomb. You can see where he was laid. Because he had an end date. Because he was just human. For for as good as he was, as great of a king as he was, as great of a man as he was, he was still just a guy. But David also knew the promise of God that through the line of David, one would sit on the throne forever. David knew something, someone greater was coming. And that one is Jesus. He is the fulfillment of the promise. He is the greater king. He is the promised Messiah. He is everything that God promised he would be. And we see in verse 36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. You can have all kinds of plans for your 2020. And you can do a bunch of things to change aspects of your life. You can change your behaviors. But if that's all you mean by change, you will never find the true life that you are actually craving. New life is found in Christ and him alone. End of discussion. It is faith in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. That new life that people are so desperately craving is only found in him. It is in no other name. It is in no other action. It is no other anything outside of Jesus. Your 2020 and beyond will remain ultimately unchanged of any real substantial difference until you allow Jesus to be the Lord of your life. Note that I said Lord of your life, not just become a Christian, but Lord of your life, King of your life, in complete control of your life. And so the people hear this sermon, thousands of people, and they respond. They have the the response that every preacher wants to have to a sermon. They respond and say, how do we respond to this? We heard the gospel. We want to respond. What do we have to do to be saved? They were cut to the heart. They were confronted. They were confronted and conflicted and challenged. What shall we do? And Peter says to them in verse 38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. To repent is to turn away from, to go in the opposite direction, to leave behind what was and pursue something new. In trusting in Jesus, it is vital to repent of who you were and to pursue Christ. Because you can't pursue, go after the sins that you once pursued and Jesus at the same time. You can't go north and south at the same time. You are either going after Jesus or you are in any moment either going after Jesus or you are going in the opposite direction. There is no middle ground. There is no standing still. There is no neutral actions, neutral thoughts. You are either pursuing Christ with your thoughts, your actions, your words, your deeds, or you are pursuing Satan. And the reality is, even if you are a Christian, none of us are 100% of the time pursuing Jesus. Paul tells those listening, he says, repent of your old ways. Turn away from them. Go in an opposite direction and turn to Jesus. And if you haven't yet done that, 
I pray this morning is that day where you turn away from your sin and you pursue Christ. That today is that day where you put your faith in the life and death and burial and resurrection of Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. But you see, repentance is not just a one and done kind of thing. You don't repent one time when you get saved and then you're done with it. The first of Martin Luther's 95 theses that he nailed to that church door says, Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ, when he said repent, willed that the whole life of believers should be repentance. It is something we must regularly be pursuing. Evaluating our lives, evaluating our actions, our inactions, our thoughts and our words, and where needed, confess and repent and turn away and pursue Christ instead. Peter also tells them, be baptized. Now, Peter is not saying it, and nowhere does Scripture tell you this. Baptism doesn't save you, right? Baptism is not like, okay, I got baptized, so now I'm saved. Baptism doesn't save you. Baptism comes after salvation. It is in response to being saved. You are baptized in the name of Jesus, baptized in the name of the one you have put your faith in. Baptism is a symbol. It is a gift for us. The church word for it is sacrament. It's a way where we can identify with Christ in his death and resurrection. In the same way that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again, we're submerged underwater in baptism, and then we come up. And what does water do? Water cleans, and so we are symbolically cleaned, washed of our sin. Baptism is done in response to what you have already experienced. It, was still, it still is, just as it was then, a public declaration of your allegiance to Jesus. Because back then, baptism made a clear statement. In that day, in the, in the days of the New Testament church, Jews were not commonly baptized. The only people really that were baptized were, were Gentiles who wanted to become Jews, who wanted to convert to Judaism, you would be baptized. And so for these Jewish men and women to be baptized showed just how strongly they felt they needed Jesus. If you are a believer and you haven't been baptized, why not? Jesus commanded it. He didn't just suggest it, he commands it. In the New Testament, all of the apostles and disciples commanded as well. We're actually going to have a baptism class in February, so if you have not been baptized, you want to learn more about it, you want to learn the whys and the whats and all of that kind of thing, I'd love for you to come in February. We'll start announcing it in a couple weeks. Love for you to come and hang out and learn more about baptism. Peter tells the crowd, repent, believe, and be baptized. He says, this is not for any specific group. This is not a limited time offer to a select few who happen to join in. The promise of acceptance, the promise of forgiveness, the promise of grace, the promise of mercy, the promise of identity, the promise of God's presence with you always is for you, Peter says, and for your children and for all who are far off. Anyone and everyone who would put their faith in Christ is invited into the family of God. I pray that you would have in yourselves the same reaction that those who heard Peter's sermon did. We see in verse 41, those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. They became children of God. They heard the gospel and they responded in that moment and became children of God. If you're looking for something to study um, in the new year, if you're looking for something Bible passage or, or book to read, um, King Solomon wrote the book Ecclesiastes. Solomon is known as the richest, the wisest, the most estest est of the New Test or of the Old Testament. And he wrote this book Ecclesiastes, and what he's really saying is 
He's trying to find completeness. He's trying to find what is the meaning of life. What is, where do I find satisfaction in this life? And because he was the richest and the wisest and one of the most powerful men to walk the earth, he had access to everything. And so he pursues, and the book of Ecclesiastes talks about how he pursues trying to find his identity, trying to find his satisfaction in money, in sex, in drink, in knowledge. He walks down every road. He experiences all that life has to have, good and bad. And ultimately, he lands in two realities. The book of Ecclesiastes ends with him declaring that the whole duty and point of man is to fear God and obey the commandments of God. Solomon says, I have tried everything. I have gone through every situation possible. At the end of the day, the whole point of this existence is to fear God and obey God. That's where you find satisfaction. That's where you find identity. That's where you find life. The other reality, the other point that he lands on is one of the more famous quotes from the book. He says that there is nothing new under the sun. One of the hard joys of my role as pastor is to get to walk with people in the midst of hardships and confusion and weak points. And I say it's a hard joy because it breaks my heart to know that the people that I love are suffering. But it is a great joy in my life to be trusted and welcomed into the lives of people who are willing to do so. And regularly as I meet with people, who feel like God has walked away, who feel like God is so far and they can't hear him and they can't see him and they don't know what he's doing. They feel like everything is the worst, everything is closing in around them and they just don't know what to do. I will usually ask about a few basic things. Some might consider them basic anyway, but in reality these are the tent, pole, tent posts of growing in faith. Kind of a, just a, a basic check of, okay, so where are we with, with these things? to see and experience change in 2020, to see true growth, to take that next step in your faith. It's not some new element that no one has ever experienced or thought of. There's nothing new under the sun. Really, it's coming back to the things you know are going to help you grow. It's coming back to the gifts and tools God himself has given us in order to pursue him. And that's what I want to focus the rest of our time on together. Skip down to verse 42 in, uh, in Acts 2. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Verse 42 really sums it all up. This is what the New Testament church did, right? Jesus, God enters into humanity, lives on this earth, dies on the cross, pays a penalty for our sins in our place, raises from the dead, defeats sin, death, hell, and the grave, he appears to thousands of people. And then he ascends publicly, ascends into heaven where he waits until his return. Now Jesus is gone. And those who followed him, those who watched him die, those who encountered the risen Christ now have to look around and say, now what do we do? How do we do this? How do we live this life like he's with us even though he's no longer physically with us? 
And then what we see happen is the book of Acts. What we see happen is the church starts. Community happens. It is not a coincidence that Christ leaves and the church begins. The church is God's plan. It is God's point. It is the plan to be the light of the world in this world. In this dark world, as Christ has left the church, the local church, in the different bodies that it encounters and collects together throughout the world, this is the point. And so for the people who say, I don't do church, I don't do community, I can do my relationship with God on my own, yes, you can. Church is the point. We're made for community. We're made to be together. Church is important. And we see the church come together and try to figure out how this life happens. And it's messy and it's hard but they devote themselves to a few key things. They focused on studying God's word, they focused on community, and they focused on prayer. It says they devoted themselves to these things. To devote is to persevere in these things, to be diligent, to attend closely to, to give constant attention to. It's not something that came naturally or it just happened. It was intentional, consistent decision-making made in response to the gospel. It was taking a daily step, moment by moment, to pursue the things that we see in verse 42. It says they are devoted to the apostles' teaching. What is an apostle? Apostle just means one who is sent. In this context, it refers to the disciples of Jesus, the original 12. Well, Midas Judas is 11, but then they replace him, so back to 12. All right, so 12. And then you also have the Apostle Paul. He meets Jesus on Damascus, and he gets sent as well. So you have those who are sent. They're called apostles, those who are sent actually personally by Jesus. So what they teach? Well, if you go back and read Peter's sermon again, they taught them. They taught what Jesus taught them. They focus on Jesus. They focus on the gospel, the good news that God entered into humanity to die for us and give us new life. They taught Jesus and the gospel. And if you go read Luke's account in Luke's gospel that after Christ raises from the dead, he sits with the disciples and he walks them through the Old Testament and he shows them all of the different ways in which the Old Testament points them to Jesus. Most epic Bible study that ever happened. And so that's what they do. They open up the scriptures and they say these things, these psalms, these different encounters, David and Goliath, Daniel and the lions, then all of these different things that we look, they point us to Jesus. They preached Jesus. They taught Jesus. That's what we teach. That's what we study. We study God's word, which is studying Jesus. It's a comforting revelation. Let me tell you, as a pastor, as a preacher, it's a comforting revelation that I don't have to come up with something unique or brand new. I don't have to be the most unique preacher. I just got to point you to Jesus. I got to help you see that these words, these God's word is living and active. It points us to Jesus, and then we are called to respond to that. And that's the key part is that we've got to respond to what God's word has to say. As you study the gospels, if you study the life of Jesus, you study those gospels, Jesus wasn't just looking to impart some knowledge for the sake of knowledge. It wasn't just, hey, here's a fun fact, here's a piece of trivia for you. When Jesus taught, it was to bring about a reaction in people, to bring about life change. And the same is true today. We study the Bible not just to learn information and facts and figures, but to let the living, active word of God change us and call us to respond. So open your Bibles. Get in a community group. Like I said, we're studying studying Galatians, but we're also learning how to study the Bible. 
Listen to sermons. Read your Bible. Study. Engage with what God has given you. Because if this book really is what we say it is, if it really is the almighty creator of all existence word to us, do we treat it that way? Do we get into it and devour it and enjoy it in the same way we do with the news or with podcasts or with shows on Netflix or our social media accounts? Because if you open it, if you get into the world, if you are actively pursuing knowing God through his word, it's going to change you. And what it's going to do is it's going to bring up, it's going to shine a light in the dark spots of your life. It's going to bring up and churn up all of the junk and garbage, the stuff that you haven't dealt with, the stuff you don't want to deal with. That's what God's word is going to do. It's going to make you see all of that stuff, and God wants to deal with those things. And I think that's why people, I know that's why I avoid it. When I avoid reading the Bible, it's usually because I know I'm pursuing something God doesn't want me to, and if I crack open the Bible, he's going to tell me, and then i got to deal with it. But I also know that if I am to grow, if I am to be the light he has made me to be, if I am to be that guy I want to be when I'm older, if I'm going to pour out for others, then i got to be willing to let God who I know is good all of the time to do a work in me. And it's hard, and sometimes it's uncomfortable, and sometimes it's a pain, but I know he has got his, my best interest in heart. And so I'm going to go to the word, I'm going to go pursue him and let him shine that light in my heart and cultivate and show me those places that need to get addressed. If we do devote ourselves to knowing God through Scripture, we're going to see life change because this is a living and active word. You want change in your life? You want something new? You want new direction? It's a great place to start. Is Open your Bibles and start reading. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread, to fellowship, to being together. They devoted themselves to fellowship, to participation with one another. Sharing with one another. Not only participation, but willing participation with one another. They devoted themselves to sharing each other's lives. It was not a devotion to showing up to a service two to three times a month, showing up ten minutes late, leaving five minutes early, and not engaging with anyone that you see. No, they, they were connected. They were involved in each other's lives. You see in verses 44 and 45, they took care of one another. If someone was sick, if someone was hurting, if someone needed help, they cared for one another. They stepped in for one another. See, the church took care of its own. They took care of one another. It wasn't just the leaders of the church taking care of everybody else. Now, as you read the book of Acts, there are parts, there are places where the organization of the church made provisions to help the people. And that's something that we as a church want to do. And we have funds set aside and we try to get involved. If we know we can help, we do that. But the organizational provision was in conjunction with what the people were doing for one another. How many babies were born in our church community in the last year? How many people moved? How many people have been in the hospital? How many people have been alone for the holidays? How many people have struggled to pay bills? How many people have experienced the loss of a family member or a loved one? They're not back yet, so I can talk about them. How many Moody students have shown up in our midst? 
who are away from home for some of them for the first time in their entire lives. And I bring these things up to show you there are definite, tangible needs in our church. Have we engaged and helped as much as we could? Have we even offered? Have we even gone so little as to throw a text of encouragement or congratulations or just offering some help to someone? And hear me say we in all of those things. This is not me top down wagging my finger and saying do better church. This is us as brothers and sisters, as a community, are we caring for one another in the best way we possibly can? Because I know where I have fallen short. I know where I've let things slip through the cracks. And I realize not everyone knows about everything going on in everybody's lives. I get that. But most of the things I listed, even just these couple of things I listed this morning, between our own announcements, emails, and prayer requests, you should probably have a general idea of the big stuff happening in each other's lives. Fellowship means getting involved. It's hard. It's messy. It costs. It costs us time. It costs us energy. It costs us even financially sometimes. That's also a two-way street, right? Because people have got to be willing to let us in at times. But again, even just a simple text of, hey, I'm thinking I'm praying for you. Or, gasp, a written note to someone goes a very long way in encouraging and loving other people. And again, this is where community groups for us kind of come to play. It's a way for us to engage during the week. It's a way for us to hear a bit about each other's lives and to share our own life, to walk together through the trials and tribulations that come, to share and engage and connect with one another. They were devoted to this. It was intentional decision-making. It wasn't always natural. It doesn't always come easy, but it was consistent. They were persevering in this, persevering in fellowship. You know what you have to persevere in? Things that are hard. You don't really have to persevere in things that are easy. So it wasn't all sunshine and rainbows, and the New Testament church is not perfect. They have their flaws. They have their issues. But they also were devoted to caring for one another. See, people came to understand the life-changing reality of the gospel, the fact that God entered the world and he saves us. And he calls us to this new life. It was this life-changing reality of the gospel and they believed it. And then they lived in response to that. They let the life-changing reality of the gospel be life-changing reality. It changed the way they spent their time. It changed the way they spent their relationships. It changed the way they spent their money. And that doesn't even talk about the amount of different Jews who became Christians and were kicked out of their families, kicked out of cities, that they showed up in Jerusalem and the church had to care for these people who have lost everything because they accepted Christ. The church was dedicated and devoted, and it was messy. They didn't do it right all of the time. There was still brokenness. There's still messy parts and hard parts and ugly parts of the church, but we are dedicated to persevere through those things to care for one another. It also says that they were devoted to breaking the bread together. That's a phrase for taking communion. And we see that a lot of that was happening in homes, and they were having meals together. Often, at that time, communion was not like what we do here, where we, it's kind of this formalized thing as part of church. Communion back then was tied to an actual meal. To take communion was to have a full-on meal with your friends and family. Think about like when you get together like Thanksgiving and Easter and Christmas. You have those big family meals, right? And where it's, 
fancy food and lots of celebration and laughter. And, and that's kind of what communion was at that time. It was a special event where hospitality was on display and people engaged with one another. They celebrated and remembered what Christ had done. It was, it was a joyful activity. It was something where you could engage with others around you over food, which is always a tangible way to show love for one another. It's a tangible way to care for one another. Communion became such a big deal. It became such a party, such an enjoyment, that actually if you read some of Paul's letters in Corinthians, he tells them, look, you're partying too hard when you get to communion. You're having too much fun. You're going to too many bottles of wine. You need to pull it back. That's how much they were enjoying the company of being together and celebrating what God had done. That Paul had to say, hey, let's ease it up a little bit. They were gathering together over food. I don't, we haven't made a huge deal of it, and I think we probably should, and we need to do a better job of it. But last, all last year, all fall last year, Emily Alexander was opening her home once a month for any college kids, whether or not they came to our church, any college kids willing, who wanted to come over and just have a meal after church. This is a girl who just got out of college herself. And this was something that she would have loved to have had, that she got to experience some hospitality being in our church. And she said, I want to care for the next generation. I want to care for those who are behind me. And so once a month, she opened her home, and she made food, and she's going to continue to do it this in the winter and spring for any college kids that shows up. That's the kind of thing we're talking about. That is this beautiful example of just caring, of caring for the needs of the people around us. Because a pot of spaghetti and a pitcher of lemonade go a long way to caring and showing love for somebody. It says they were devoted to celebrating and remembering the sacrifice of Christ together outside of just when they met corporately. And again, we have community groups. We also have potluck and prayer. We have events and activities that are geared toward helping, helping us grow in our faith. I, we do different things that are helping, gearing us and growing in our faith. But then sometimes we have things where we just want to get together and have fun together. To just enjoy the community that God has given us. And so we try to do picnics and game nights and spontaneous lunch trips to Costco. And just let's just remember that we like to be together and have some fun. We've got to enjoy this. We want to gather together and just spend time together. Because the point is we're trying to build up community. We're trying to grow in our community. You can't expect other people to do that for you if you aren't willing to do it yourself. Which means it starts with when you come here, just saying hi and making eye contact and engaging with somebody, acknowledging other people. It's a real simple way to foster community in a church. The only way we're going to continue to grow, the only way we're going to continue to have a strong community here is that if we work at it, We've got to be intentional about it. Because, look, I can plan events all year long, but if nobody shows up, or on the other side, if the only times we interact with one another is at a, like, CF Presents kind of event, that's not real community. That's not real fellowship. Fellowship is an intentional engagement with one another. And it's got to be something that we're, that's part of who we are. It's in the name of the church. We can't change the name of the church. It's 90 years old. It says that the church was devoted to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. They were devoted to prayer. They persevered in prayer. They were consistent in prayer. They were constant in prayer. Prayer is a gift from God to us. 
He is the almighty creator of all existence. He is beyond and above all people, all of creation. There is no reason he should engage with us other than his desire to engage with us. Prayer is a chance for us to share our hearts, to share our lives with God, to have fellowship with God. We can do this on our own. We can do this in our heads. You can do this in a journal. You can do this out loud. You can do this silently. Prayer is flexible. But it's a process. It is a discipline to grow in. And it does take some focus. If making a list helps, make a list. I have like three different ones that I kind of rotate through because I need the focus. I'm also a verbal processor, so I can just talk at God, and he won't interrupt, and he won't tell me to stop talking. That's what he wants, though. He wants to just have that conversation with us. He wants us to be in his word so he can speak to us and be in prayer so we can speak to him. And don't let either side of that conversation fall away. You can do this with other people. You can do this. We pray together corporately. In a, when we gather on Sundays, we pray together corporately multiple times in the service because it's important to us. We have people that pray one-on-one during our service with us. We send out emails every week with prayer requests for one another. Some of you might have already noticed out in the hallway where there was an old map, there is a work-in-progress prayer wall that's being put together. The board's cut up into thirds, if you didn't check it out yet. One is to encourage praying for the church around the world. It's going to have more global events, more, we're going to pray for countries, we're going to pray for persecuted church, things like that, kind of keep us thinking big. And then there's a section that's going to be about praying for Roscoe Village, because this is the neighborhood God has put us in. And for 90 years, he has called us to love and serve this place, and that's what we want to do. We want to see this neighborhood grow and thrive and flourish. So there's going to be a list of businesses that are going to be up there. There's the list of local schools that are up there. We've got a, a map that has kind of the borders of Roscoe Village. Um, there's all kinds of different, there's a lot of people that live in this neighborhood. Just pick a block and pray for that block. And then change every week. You can pray for different blocks. And the third section on that board is going to just be for us. We can leave prayer requests on there. You can put your name on it. You don't have to put your name on it. You can write out a full thought. You can write out shorthand. If you want to put a request about another person, you can just put initials up there. Right? We're not going to use this as like, that person's a jerk. I'm going to pray for them and put it right. We're not going to use this as like weird gossip or attacking each other. Okay? But it's a way we can pray for one another. We can pray for family. We can pray, but we don't have to like put a spotlight on it. Um, the weekly prayer email is going to go up there as well. But like anything else... That board only works if we use it. So going forward, walk over there on Sunday mornings, maybe take a picture of it on your phone so you have it. You can use it as kind of a prayer point during the week. Um, I said we have a prayer email. It goes out every week. If you want to leave prayer requests, you can do that on the Connect card. Um, But really what what I've seen is over time is that not a whole lot of people open that email. I'm going to let that linger for a second. Yes, I know who and how many people open our emails. Everything's going to spike this week. (laughs) But we consider prayer something very important, something we value and love. And so I want this board to help. If that's going to help, cool, let's do it, and we'll try and keep it up to date as best as possible. Do you know there's a group of people who gather every Sunday morning at about 9.45 up in the lounge up there to just pray for one another and pray for our church, pray for our service every Sunday? It's open to everybody. You can show up. 
I say this all the time when I talk about that. What would your Sunday look like if instead of being hurried and rushed and late, you made a plan, you were intentional to get here early, to gather with your brothers and sisters and pray for each other and for our church even before we walk down here at 1030? What would that change? How would that affect your Sunday? I said these things are, are tent poles I come back to when I meet with people. Some would call them really simple. But really, as you look at your life, how's your scripture reading going? Are you putting positive in? Are you putting good in? Because as you do that, as you go ahead and put in the gospel and you, you read God's word, you're going to shine that light on the dark spots that God wants to deal with. But all of this stuff doesn't matter. All of these temples, all of these things to do, they don't matter until we start with Jesus. We've got to start with Jesus and truly by putting our faith and hope and life in the King of kings and Lord of lords and giving him the ability to be that King and Lord of our life. Then you start to look at it and say, okay, well, how is my scripture reading? Because think about like when you eat nothing but unhealthy food. You eat nothing but junk food. You get sick, you don't feel good, you move sluggish, and then you start to introduce healthy food into your system. It starts to clean you out, it starts to do some work, but then you start to feel better, you got more energy, you got more life, you're going to see immediate change. As you put scripture in, you're going to see reactions within yourself change. You're going to see yourself reacting to the truth of scripture. How's your community? How's your fellowship? Are you putting yourself around people who build you up? Are you engaging and sharing your life with others in an intentional way? Whose voice speaks loudest to you in your life? Are you yourself intentionally trying to build community and speak into the lives of those around you? How's your prayer life? Are you speaking with God? Are you listening to him? Are you meditating on his word? Are you praying his word back to him? Are you letting him speak to you? These are things to look at and evaluate. Are they going to fix every problem? No, they're not. Because you can be strong in all of these areas and still have hardship. They are not going to magically make your life perfect. They do not somehow just keep the evil away. But what they do, if we can be persistent, if we can be devoted in these things, what they do is that when when the hardship comes, when the storms come, it will help us weather those storms. And also check out verse 47. It says, praising God, having favor with all the people, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So the believers in the New Testament church were devoting themselves to studying the word. They were devoting themselves to fellowshipping with other believers. They were devoting themselves to praying together. And because of that, day by day, people were getting saved. Day by day, people were seeing how the church was acting and loving each other, and caring for one another. Day by day, people were engaged and interacting with these Christians. And they were interested, and they came to want to know what's so different about you. And they were told about Jesus, and they received the grace and mercy of putting their faith in Christ, and they were saved. The way you live your life matters. It matters to other people. It doesn't just matter for you and your own personal walk with Christ, but it matters to other people because God has called us to be part of calling people to himself. The way you live your life not only matters for yourself, but for others. I've said it a bunch, is that when you get saved, you are saved from the wrath of God, but you are also saved to be a blessing to others. 
the way you live, the way you engage with one another, the way we live as a church, as corporately and as individuals, matters to the rest of the world. 2020 is here. And in a blink of an eye, it's going to be gone. We're not even guaranteed to see it all the way through. So what changes? What growth do you want to see? What does your next step of faith look like? What opportunities are you going to step into? 2020 is wide open with potential. So I think it makes sense for us to get together and pray that God would not only reveal where we can step into, what we can, next step we can take, but give us the devotion to pursue it. So let's pray to that. God, you are good. God, you didn't just make us, make this world, and then just leave us to figure it out, leave us on our own. You, you gave us your word. You gave us history. You gave us yourself. You gave us your son to come and show us. You gave us your son to teach us. You gave us men and women who we can look to, who we can lean on, who we can stand on the shoulders of and, and pursue you. You gave us tangible gifts, things like the written word, the ability to come and pray to you. You made us to be in community with one another. You have given us these things. Lord, help us to not take them for granted. Help us to engage with them, to encourage one another, to grow in these places. Lord, we know our church is not perfect. But God, we want to be a place that grows in becoming Christ-like and proclaiming Christ. We want to be a place where we are growing as individuals, where we are growing as a community, where we are pointing people toward you in our neighborhoods, in our apartment buildings, at our jobs, in our schools, in all these different places. Give us these opportunities to be this light that you have made us to be. God, we know it's not always easy. We know there's hardship. We know it's, it's messy even just with other Christians. And then let alone you take us outside of these walls. It gets real tough. God, help us to remember you are with us always. That this is your plan. That you are in control of all things and you know how this story plays out. Help us to remember that and be motivated and transformed by that and lean into that reality. God, we thank you for who you are, for what you have done, what you are doing, what you're going to do. As we look ahead to 2020, Lord, we see the, the men and women we want to be, the growth that we want to see, and we know it can't happen without you. So, Lord, help us to pursue you above any and everything else as we pursue to grow in our faith, as we pursue growing to be these lights of the world that you have made us to be. We pray all of these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen.